Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Sean. On today's episode, I was thrilled to get to talk to author Ricky Tucker, and we discussed specifically his book and the category is Inside New York's Vogue House and Ballroom Community. Conversation was fantastic. I don't need to tell you anymore. You'll be able to hear it for yourself in a minute. But a little bit about Ricky. Let's let me let you know he is a writer, an educator, an art critic, and a North Carolina native based in Brooklyn. His work explores the imprints of art, politics, and memory on narrative and the absurdity of most fleeting moments. Tucker has written for the Paris Review, the Tenth Magazine, and Public Seminar, among others, and has performed for several reading series, including the Moth Grand Slam. In 2017, he was chosen as a Lambda Literary Emerging Writer Fellow for Creative Nonfiction. And now, the book... What is Ballroom? Not a song, a documentary, a catchphrase, a TV show, or an individual pop star. Ballroom and the House Vogue System is an underground subculture founded over a century ago by LGBTQ Black and Latinx people of Harlem. Creative, talent-laden, and intersectional, it transcends identity, serving as a fearless response to the systemic marginalization of minority populations. This book cannot stress enough. If you've watched Disclosure, if you watch watched Paris is Burning, if you have watched Pose, if you've watched Legendary, or if you have no idea of what I'm talking about, this book is for you. You need to go get it. You need to read it. But um, I'll let Ricky tell you all about it in the interview. It's fantastic. And I cannot wait to have him back on the show again. Uh, first, I do want to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Snuffy. Snuffy is a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. So shop online now at snuffy.co. That's snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y.co. The owner and operator of Snuffy is good friend of the podcast, Nick Silvestri, who designed the Detox Podcast logo. So if you like the logo, you want to go support him, go check it out, snuffy.co. And by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on nostalgia overload. With toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane and a chance to reclaim what was once yours but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys at TheEmpireToys.com. Now, without further ado, my conversation with Ricky Tucker is right up after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time, I am so excited to talk to this amazing and incredible author, Ricky Tucker, author of, and the category is, I, I always have to say it that way when I read it, Ricky Tucker, how are you doing today, Ricky? I'm doing really good. How are you doing? I'm doing better now that I'm talking to you because we're going to have a fantastic conversation and I'm, I am a, just have so much enthusiasm, I can't even find the right words of which to use to describe the level of excitement I have. So we'll get into all the questions that I have about the book. Um, but here at the Detox Podcast, we invite people to detox from the world around them and uh, take some time out of their day to listen to a perspective and, uh, and get a window into how other people live their lives. And so as we go and try and make a more inclusive world. And so to start off the episode, I, I like to ask my guests a question. And Ricky, I'll ask that to you of what are you currently detoxing from? Ooh. Um, well, 
caring about what people think about me interpersonally, you know, like the, my ideas, that's what I want to be known for most. But when people um, have opinions about me that um, um, are different than how I hold myself or how I intend. And so that's going to happen inevitably. So I just sort of have to let go of that. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm trying to let go of other people's perceptions. That's well put. I think one of the things that I have historically struggled with is also um, I have this need to, to for everyone to like me. Um, and I feel pangs when uh, when that's not the case. But I think being in the pandemic and, and really having to uh, reevaluate a lot of relationships and, and situationships within life and go, you know what, I think I'm okay if this is the circle of family and friends that I have coming out of the pandemic. Um, yes. And I, I don't didn't really need all of the other clutter. Um, I didn't have emotional capacity for it. And so I think the the pandemic allowed me, and I know others, the space to, to kind of cut out things that were causing a bit more emotional distress, so to speak. And to add to that, I will say guilt. Yes. Uh, trying to let go of guilt because it's, a, just not, a, I mean, you're going to feel it, but um, letting yourself uh, sort of suffer based on guilt, especially when your int intentions are usually good. I'm really trying to detox from that. You know, people, you know, yeah, I'll say that. I'll say that much. You know, people will feel left out or make you feel guilty and you only have so much time in a day, especially now that we're all out in the world. And so um, saying, no, I can't do something. Um, it's okay. And feel guilty about it for a second, but then let go of it because there's nothing you can do about it. And it's just not constructive. Yeah. So, yeah. That's very, very well put. And I know that um, talking about the book, I actually kind of want to start in this space because you were writing it and doing some of the interviews um, you mentioned in the midst of the pandemic, or at least the early days of the pandemic. So yeah. can you, um, as we're starting to, for those who may not be familiar with the book, I want to, I want to tee up um, a little bit of a brief overview of the book, but I also want to know, I want to start with how did you find um, or I guess I would say this, how is it navigating some of the last critical pieces of your, of your book in the midst of 2020 pandemic? It was kind of easy. Um, it, 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 I mean, I, I, it sounds so obnoxious when I say this and I've said this to friends, but it was actually writing a book was way easier than, um, than I thought it was going to be. And, um, and, and primarily that because with that partic this particular book, I had researched it for 10 years, not knowing that I was going to write a book, right? Sure. Like it was just sort of like ravenously like absorbing information about ballroom and then not necessarily having a place to put it until I figured, oh, I do have a place to put it. So, um, so that was really just a joy. I mean, a lot of my writing process in general, especially when it comes to art or a particular like socio-political um, situation, um, it's always what, well, what do I know about this? You know, like how much do I, it's really just like throwing onto a page or just thinking in my head, what's everything I know about this? And then all of a sudden you start kind of like beautiful minding and you see like connecting lines and you're like, it's faith-based because you're writing it and you're like, I think I'm going somewhere, maybe. <laughs> um, and then you're like, oh, look, I am somewhere. And then sometimes the place where you are is like unfamiliar and you're like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. Cause I didn't even know the directions to this place. Right. Um, so, um, so it was really just a joy. And I worked, um, I wrote the first chapter before 2020 just to get the, um, the to as part of the proposal and to get the book deal. Sure. Um, so the first chapter had been written 
And then I got the book deal. And, I, and then I took a while to actually start writing the second chapter. I just more so just started interviewing people to see where they led me. Um, and, the, and then the pandemic hit. Um, and I sat there for about two, three months and didn't start writing until April. And then so, and working a full-time job in advertising at the, at the same time. And um, and then around April, I got an email from my editors being like, hey, you know, we can push it back if you want, just uh, what's going on? And I was like, oh no, we're not pushing anything back. And I just, I just like put my nose to the grindstone and blocked everything out and, um, and absorbed all, and then absorbed all the horrible news that was going on at the time. But then um, it was actually kind of a dream. Like it was the first time coming out of advertising, you have a lot of checks and balances, a lot of editing, sure, a lot of revisions. Um, and I was frustrated with my particular job at that point. And so being able to have complete and utter creative control was just a, just a joy, just a, a, such a joy just to be able to sit around and watch with forensic level um, intricacy, the queen or um, or a, a, a Paris is burning and just like, be like I, I got to rewind that part, and, which is what I do anyway. But this time it was, I was doing it for um, a greater good. And so it just was so much fun. It was really fun. Not necessarily um, not painless, but fun, but, sure. but very fun. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, you brought, I'm going to circle back to the queen and Paris is burning here momentarily. Um, for those who, who uh, may be jumping in and going, what is this wonderful book that you're talking about? We're talking right, about yeah. the book and the category is inside New York's Vogue house and ballroom community. And it is, in my opinion, and I don't think I am alone, the quintessential book on the ballroom community. And so I want to I want you to tell the listeners about what was um, not necessarily the motivation but for you, but really just what was the the pull and the calling that you had to write this book for the community, for others to come and educate themselves about. So I've had like an, a slow rolling but long term love affair with ball, ballroom and ball culture um, since I was a little kid, just because, you know, like everybody else, I heard Madonna's Vogue and, and it sort of scratched an itch and you sort of think, well, what is this thing that she's referring to? We know she probably didn't make it up. So and who are these people dancing with her, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that sort of I already had that there. And then I saw Paris is Burning when I was about 20 or 21, I think, maybe 22 in Boston. I, saw, I rented it and um, and I was like, there it is. I just kind of knew like it was something that I had been looking for, but didn't know existed. And it seemed like the perfect ball, ball culture, people voguing, people walking, um, realness categories, um, queer, black, Latino folks, trans folks um, walking certain categories for prizes and all it all seemed like a obvious but hidden response to toxic masculinity mm -hmm. and growing up gay like and loving to dance i those things were so compartmentalized it was in private spaces that i was learning the choreography to janet jackson's um pleasure principle music video or like um you know your wrist never goes too limp around your military father and so i all of this stuff has been contained and, and all of a sudden I saw Paris is burning and this, this, is, this was a place where these things were exploding and, and explosive and had power and were um, congratulated and celebrated. Um, and so that changed my life. And then about 10 years later, I went to the new school. I moved from Boston to New York and went to the new school and 
saw a class on the register um, that said uh, that was called Vogology and, I, and it was half theory and half practice. So I got to learn to dance Vogue, which I had already been fascinated with. And then I also got to learn um, uh, about ball culture all from people who were in the community. Um, and so and some of them famous. And so, um, and so I learned a lot there and then I just never stopped thinking about it. And I asked my two professors slash house fathers at that point if I could if I could teach Vogue workshops um, at the school just for fun you know for other students who didn't take that class and they gave me that permission so I did that and then I started teaching Vogue workshops elsewhere like I taught one at AWP which is the um, association association of writing programs an annual conference that all the schools and publishers and authors go to um, and so I did a workshop there and um, taught those stuffy white folks out of Vogue and then so <laughs> You know, and so like it was just always right here, you know, and if they if there was a ballroom question, someone would call me and ask. And so um, but I don't walk balls because when I found ballroom as a family, I was 29, 30. And so it just seemed silly for me to start walking balls because the kids in New York start doing that at 14, you know, and so I was a little over the hill. And also, I didn't wasn't sure that that's even something I wanted to do. And my dance is for me. It's not a like I play violin and I dance and it's not something that I want to perform per se. Sure. It's a. Writing is my performance. And so um, to me, writing this book, um, it came through just working with folks in ballroom. And then eventually we we're working with somebody who's a literary agent um, on a different sort of um, activist pr uh, pr uh, project called 400 Years of Inequality. Um, the agents on email with me and my house fathers and said, you know, you're a writer, you're working for marketing for the school, would you want to write a book about ballroom? And it was really just, you know, a classic, like, no duh situation. Like, I <laughs> I'd really, I mean, maybe I thought, I can't remember this, like, because now we're, I'm so deep in, I have a book about ballroom sure. that, like, I can't remember if it ever occurred to me, but it might have been one of those things where I was like, oh, well, no, I'll write that as my third book. My first book is a collection of art essays. And, like, my second book is Woe is Me, I'm a Sad Gay Teen. And then the third book is, like, to ballroom, you know, but yeah. really, um, when the idea came up, it was just, like, obviously, you know, um, and the whole thing just was really organic and really fast and really fun. Um, and, um, and I'm, and I'm now I'm in the mindset of like, my navel gazing can wait almost in like indefinitely. I much rather write books that are, um, of service to someone. Yeah. So. No, I'm well, well put. One of the things that you said that I really liked, um, you talked about what you can contribute to, to the community right and so your writing is this book is contributing to the community and you have your part where you talk about uh church i know i had talked to you about offline about talking about chapter four the children and we'll get to that but chapter five church you talk about with mike q and lee Solja and and talking with mike about his music being the contribution to the community and the the beats that he constructs and the way in which um, him and other DJs as well contribute. Um, and some DJs walk and some don't, and then some have the music that contributes. And what fascinates me and what I think is so beautiful is how, yes, you can walk balls and you can also contribute to the community in various other ways, wherever your skill sets are, and, and give back and, and help and, uh, and provide, like you said, a service. And so I want to know, what have you seen as far as the continual, the continuous reach of the ballroom community to uh, the 
I guess I would say the the wider communities at large. So the wider LGBTQ plus communities and and others that are maybe just now discovering the community for the first time through whether it's posed, through whether it's legendary, through whether it's this book. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I ballroom. I've been saying throughout this sort of tour is that it's a prototype for freedom. Yeah. I mean, you know, it may be uh, some of the folks in the ballroom community may be the most marginalized and the most sort of um, put upon, and also you know, uh, complexly the most dazzling and what have you, but. Um, everyone's freedom is at stake, especially nowadays. Yes. And, and, and a lot of this has to do, you know, people talk about identity politics and they talk about either feeling like they're being held hostage by identity or that there's other people's identities are being um, pushed into their faces. But there's a point of um, liberation when you figure out that it's all a construct, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like money's not real color is real but also subjective to the human experience right. and has moral value and um we're just coming to terms with the fact that gender is a construct yep. um and if money is a construct so is class yep. and so there's all these things and so in the everyday action of walking a ball or you know playing realness as a you know you're somebody who dropped out of high school but you're playing school boy, boy realness like you start to it, it starts off, I do think, in many ways as aspirational, but, you know, at a certain point in your education in the ballroom community, you realize that, you know, it's all pretend, mm -hmm. like it's all, it's all made up, and someone's controlling that narrative, and you get to reclaim that narrative and be exactly what you want to be, and if prison, if the prison of, a, of the mind is imaginary, once you realize that, then how powerful are you, right? Yes, yes. Um, so, so, I mean, I think the in the greatest examples of someone I've, like, close people to me that have read the book, they've said, you know, like, oh, my God, this is everybody. This isn't just these Black queer folks, you know? Yes. Um, and I think that's the great epiphany that I think um, was worth me handing off to folks. I, I, you just gave me, like, literal chills right now because that is so true. I got that when I was reading it of, like, I'm reading... I'm reading and educating myself about a community that I'm learning about and I'm trying to do my due diligence and, and understand different aspects. But then as I get further along, I realize, well, this is, this is for everyone. This is about everyone in the sense of like, we are all have our own constructs that we're, that we're, um, you, um, I think you mentioned like a prison of the mind, right? That we're sucked into, that we're just going about day in and day out and not, in some cases, not questioning it for one reason or another. Um, maybe maybe enjoying it too. Right, you know? exactly. Um, but then when you step out of that and recognize there, there can be so much more um, to offer, then it's just, it's, it's a bit, um, and it's mind blown, right? It's, it's a lot more, and it, it you start recognize one starts recognizing that there is the the eternal truth, which is that there's so much more. Um, there's so there's a w bigger world out there than just us, and so we need to recognize that we can do so much more than what we are limiting ourselves to. And you talk about um, in the chapter church, and I know I'm jumping around a bit too, but the chapter on church resonated with me so much because of the fact that I grew up. 
I grew up in a very religious household. I'm not religious anymore. I am very spiritual as, a, as an individual, but I did also study theology in, in, and theater in, uh, for my undergrad. And so for me, the blending of art and the spiritual oneness um, speaks to me on a, on a deep level. And so the idea of coming to the ball, coming to church, having the music, having the choir, having everyone cheer, like we're, we're in community, we're in fellowship, we're, we're with one another. It made me like recognize, well, I started, I think I messaged you and I started crying in the children chapter and then later in the, in the chapter about church because of the fact that it's, it resonates with me as an individual and then on a communal level with, with my fellow like humans. Right. And so, and so I want to, I want to kick it over to you and ask you what were, what were some of your early experiences like experiencing uh, going to the balls? And then when did you kind of make that connection for yourself that you wrote about in the book? So the, the church thing really um, was a metaphor that my uh, gay father, Michael Roberson, who's a a huge ballroom activist and and used to walk, but is really mainly a house father um, works in public health is also a theologian. Um, went to Union the- the- uh, Theological Seminary over at Columbia. And so, you know, this was a um, an extended metaphor that was gifted to me, but um, but it put a name on how I've always felt about dancing. It put a name on, on what I always um, felt about seeing Paris's Burning and seeing what, listening to an MC to me at, um, at a ball is way more compelling at times than a, um, than a real pastor. Right. Um, but but that through line is there. And, um, but it was different me going to a ball for the first time. The first ball I went to was by myself and I was frightened. I was so afraid. Um, Cause you know, in any context with young black people I've always been just a nerd, you know? And so like, you know, like in school and like I'm always just the odd one out. And so, and ball, ballroom is so cool. And I have this re- had this reverence for it. And so, and also I was like 29 or 30 and everybody was like 16 to 22. So it's just like, oh my God. And then I wanted to respect the space. And so, and I had a bunch of friends. It was like the first semester I took Vogology and like someone in the class told us about a ball. I was like, all right, y'all, we got to go. And one by one, everybody was like, no, I'm not going to go. I'm tired. I got homework, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I guess I'm going to freaking Brownsville by myself. To, on the train I've never taken in my life in the middle of the night and you know balls don't start when they say they do like you know midnight is optimistic right if you, usually it's it it'll say it's doors at 11 it'll start at 2 30 and you're just like oh my god so I you know I was up late there was food there's a free food it was a kiki ball and which is you know the sort of the minor leagues you know this young kids where they start off and um and so um so and so there was free food there and I didn't know it was necessarily free so I was real like hesitant to eat the food sure really that's part of, you know you go to a church event there's food in the basement unless they take five dollars from you you just fix a plate right I wasn't mindset because I'm trying to respect everyone's space so it was actually very nerve-wracking until they started walking the runway and then I was just like oh well this is amazing right? yeah um and then it got easier and easier and easier after that and then I knew more and more people after that um but now the experience to go uh, uh, going to a ball is that it's like okay I have to like I have to like it's it feels ha- it feels hallowed it feels like I have to like get myself jazzed because I'm a writer and I'm usually in that capacity at a ball I'm, I do still kind of lay low but my um outward fascination with what's going on is way more outgoing right now I'm shouting I'm 
you know, doing the hand down thing when people do a spin and dip, I like, I'm in the, the commotion of it all for sure. But I don't, um, I say that I'm of ballroom. I am not ballroom per se. So like, I always go in with that level of space and distance and respect, yeah. you know, all encouragement. I don't feel out of place, but I also don't take up a, a lot of space, but sure. that's also kind of how I am too. So you had a good point when you when you referenced taking your um, nieces and nephew to the ball, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. you had you had a quote in there um, where you were telling them you can observe and participate, but respect the space. I, I might mm -hmm. be paraphrasing that a bit, right? But yeah. but yeah. It sorry, go ahead. yeah, it was a group of us, and we were all black, so that seems like it would seem like that would help. But, you know, in terms of respecting the space, but that's not an automatic ticket to entry. And my um, my friend Kareem, who was one of the three photographers for the book, um, <clears throat> he is a tall man, a tall, large black man and um, and takes up a lot of space. And he's an expert photographer, has a degree in it. That's what he does. But so he knows how to sort of shrink. But um, but I also had. My niece, who was, I think, 16 at the time. My nephew was probably about 14. Yeah. And then I had um, a friend of mine uh, who was a student at Pratt who was about 23. And um, and none of, nobody had ever been to a ball. So I said to them before we walked into this ball, and it's in the middle of a hospital too, so it's just a weird, and you can hear music coming from the like multi-purpose room in the hospital. And you're like, are we in the right place? I'm like, we're in the right place. Like, And it's the middle of a, it's a, it's a, it's a disco party basically in the middle of a day, so... <laughs> <laughs> and so before we stepped it and we see people coming out and they're all in their like drag and then my nephew's looking like what is going on and I'm like now listen focus don't look at her listen focus you all need to respect everyone's space like and I know no you don't I because I haven't finished talking respect their space don't get in the way just because a couple of us are queer doesn't mean that we get to be in the middle of the runway stay out of the way and like and respect people respect people right. they're like okay okay and they did they did a great job they did a wonderful job and also what i didn't know was that day the new york times was there doing a piece too oh, right. so there were other people there was like just orbits around the stage and the runway and like it was very busy in there so um but um they'll never forget that i'm really glad i took them to that yeah. but i have to remind everybody if i take them to a ball like there's a there's a speech there's a speech there's a pep talk mind your p's and q's don't embarrass me right <laughs> <laughs> that's really it no matter who you are, especially if you're a white person, but, right. all, but, but black folks too. Yeah. I, uh, that, that pep talk, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I've heard different, uh, authority and parental figures given me that talk before anything else. Mind your P's and Q's. Don't embarrass me. Look sharp. Let's go. <laughs> don't touch, don't touch anything. Right. Yeah. I'm not buying, I'm not buying anything. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah essentially that mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, i love i love i gotta say i love the quote in in you talk about the new york times and apparently vice was there too that that yeah, line vice, cracked me yeah. up i was just like am i like, <laughs> think, like am i should i be writing this book because it positions me like are these my peers like the new york times is nice but like you know <laughs> the lady came up to me and automatically she's like are you from vice and i was like is that how I, i'm presenting and You're also, like am i insulted or flattered i'm not sure <laughs> I was like, thank you, but no. Really. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, just like at both at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's precisely how I feel about it. No, that's fair. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about, um, I want to pivot for a moment. Um, and 
I want to talk about the children. So one of the things, you know, as as we know here on the podcast, we've got a lot of uh, parental listeners who want to make a more inclusive world for themselves and for their kids. And so what was fascinating about the about the chapter of the children in one aspect, you have your you write about your experiences with your father, um, Ricky Tucker Senior, 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 yeah, yeah. and contrasting the story because you you tell a story, you list some quotables, um, and then you have a story about getting heat stroke, and then contrasting the heat stroke with Michael and um, Robert. Mike, thank you. Yep. And just the 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 completely different approaches to fatherhood, right? In this in this specific instance, and you even have a quote that I wrote that I captured here that talked about um, like truly hands on parents. Michael and Robert often intuited what I might need and sprang into action to help, and without me even asking. Even though I was 29 years old, like the thousands of LGBTQ kids disenfranchised from their families, I needed a foundation of understanding and consistency, and that foundation became ballroom. And that's where I started crying, right? It was the, it was the, the spring into action, the into, into, intuiting what your children need, and then being there and providing it. And so I want to talk about what was it like for you as you were writing and then drawing those two contrasting profiles of fatherhood in both in your life. Hard and satisfying. And then also helped me track how true it was. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, I knew it sort of emotionally um, and intellectually, but it was really nice to actually have those fatherly experiences as parallels sort of column A and column B. Right. right. Um, it was nice. It was helpful. Um, hard to write it was the father part was hard to write but also it was really interesting too I mean it was kind of like I had when Roisin my agent suggested the book I kind of had like this like um that's so raven mo moment and kind of went into my mind's eye and was like you said this was going to happen like you know like I I you know like I yeah. and, and I for whatever reason I didn't delete that email and for whatever reason like yeah. Like I kind of knew this would happen, I guess. And um, for, well, my dad did. So I knew that we would be, um, that he would ostracize me from his life at some point. He comes in and out sometimes. And so I knew he would fuck up again. And then I knew that like, if I did write that navel gazing book of essays about my life and TV shows that I love, which is common, but um, I, I knew that I would have to talk about him at some point. And yeah. so, uh, so I knew that part was coming, but I didn't know it would so perfectly be um, utilized when talking about how important Michael and Robert are to me. Right. And, you know, I saw them today. Um, I went to, um, I went to, we've been, all been so busy and just pro to prove how dedicated they are. They're dedicated to all of their students in this crazy way. I mean, my, uh, Robert didn't, the book launch party was uh, on the, 18th of February yeah. and they were both invited Michael was the MC and Robert just needed to be there you know yeah. and the night that um the night that he the, an hour or two before we were supposed to be there Robert texted me and Michael both and said hey I have a student who um is in the emergency room suicidal I need to be with him I've been with him all night and now I need to call his mom and give her updates and I'm not going to be able to make it and it tears me up but I'm sorry 
you know, my response was, this is the reason that I love you so much. It's because you're the type of person that does that for not just this student, but all the students. Like I've, I've seen him do it time after time, even students who are rude to him, he cares for them. Um, and so, um, and so I went to their class today and it was their Vogology class. It was like, they brought it back because of this book. Um, they taught about four or five of them, I want to say, and then they stopped for a bit. And then when this book was on the verge of coming out, they were like, hey, maybe it's a good time to bring back Vogology. So I went to that class for the first time today and saw some of the videos that they showed me at one point in time, because Michael loves a video presentation <laughs> with, it's like part like trans rights, but then also Janet Jackson is all up throughout the whole thing. Like he just, you know, um, so it was like going home, you know, and I walked in and everybody, he was like, they were, he was like, he came just the right time, Ricky, everybody, this is Ricky. And they're like, Hey, and, um, and I got to see their dynamic. Michael is very, um, I mean, they really are my like parents because I don't tell him I said this, but Michael's kind of like the mom and Robert's kind of like the dad. If you have those archetypes or those um, gender uh, polemics that say one is more sort of um, critically thinking and other ones like, how do you feel, honey? You sure. know, like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but they just balance each other so well. So, and then I took Michael out to a, uh, the Waverly Place Diner, which I had a classic New York day and, and talked to him um, just about our plans and doing like a college book tour with my gay dad, which is cool. You know, we did that at Bennington and it went over really well in October as a test run. So, um, you know, and then also Kiki'd, we talked shade about some some folks and and um, and talked about the prospect of, well, I'm getting a lot of um, offers and stuff, you know, I'm getting a lot of gigs and lectures and so how to navigate that because he's been doing that for decades sure. and um, and how to ask for what I'm worth, but then also, you know, the um, the thesis of the book is, is like, fuck capitalism. So like, right. you know, like, so, um, and also don't exploit ballrooms. So, you know, I'm not a book, an academic book deal from Beacon Press isn't like, you know, I'm not making bank, you know, sure. but, uh, and for a first book. Right. And, and my other job is teaching all day. So like, um, so how do you negotiate um, trying to get out of generational poverty and but also give back to ballroom so I'm like yes. asking him questions like how much of my check should I donate to House Lives Matter and he's just like he's like slow down like you know <laughs> the book is a service like you just play it by ear don't go broke trying to you know so it, it, yeah. guidance the guidance of it all and my dad has never been that I mean the most my bio but my, my biological father but also I could just call him my father because I know him well enough and he's I've had enough contact with him over the years for him to do some real damage. So he is my dad at least, but like, um, and he can be fun rarely, but most of my family doesn't talk to him anymore. And the most sort of um, profound lessons he's ever taught me are sort of cautionary tales and stuff, yeah. what not to do. Um, and he taught me the word nonverbal because I was so nonverbal around him because he's so so hard to talk to, but like, um, but uh, yeah, the contrast is so stark. It's just like day and night and I didn't I, I think before the book I took for granted my gay fathers but um having to write that chapter it being so hard to write and then rereading it for the audiobook really tore me up I had to take a break like I actually started crying a lot and had to take a couple hours off just because um reading it reading it reading things aloud is a different it activates something different um, yes. um in the in the writing for sure yeah you brought up a good point about how much to give back to ballroom. And you talk about 
specifically when Billy Porter won his award for his role in Pose. And um, I didn't bookmark that part, but but you talk about while we're celebrating, like this is a moment in time, we're celebrating Billy, we're celebrating the show, but at the time, none of the trans cast had been nominated for any type of awards, mm-hmm. right? We've changed that now, but but at the time, that wasn't the case. We, I would say, they have been nominated. I didn't do anything, right? I don't want to claim, yeah. claim sure. not, like I'm in the... Uh, uh, my award. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was just Billy Porter was getting these awards. And so it's it's balancing the happy for the visibility. Yes, we're getting ballroom and the trans community more into the conversation. But then this is this is a moment. And is this just another a moment? We've got Paris is Burning. That's a moment. We've got Pose. That's a moment. We've got um, America's Best Dance Crew. That's a moment. Now we've got um, Legendary. That's a moment. So how can we start? And you bring up a good point of the conversation of like, on the one hand, we've got these constructs that's like, well, you know, we're here, like, fuck the constructs. We need to like be taking care of ourselves and elevating ourselves and and, and doing what we need to do. But at the same time, you need that, I don't want to say validation, but recognition of sure. the work in the community. So other people who aren't even aware of the community can start taking notice and saying, oh shit, I, what can I do? with my privilege and my standing to help. So that way this isn't always the case where we're just overlooking the community. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it's interesting. It just takes people knowing more than a surface level amount about the community. So it's more knowing deeper, having a deeper understanding of the community past a pop song, a TV show. And and really that's what I was trying to, if the book is, um, a love letter to the community, but the, the sort of second sort of objective is to fill in the blanks or sort of um, bolster the, the fluff that everybody knows, you know, right. um, and, and just give it some sort of cultural context because it's so deeply rooted in socio-political history that, um, and folks don't know that. And the, the, the culture, um, ball culture and balls have been going on for over 150 years, however, everyone thinks it's 1990 when Vogue came out or right. when Pose came out a couple of years ago, et cetera. And so um, to prevent that sort of, and you know, and that not for nothing is in tandem with capitalism, which it, which thrives on, you know, um, a, a demand and, you know, uh, accessibility and then a crash and except, you know, so yeah. ups and downs. And so, um, so, you know, in the words of Twiggy Pucci Garçon, who, um, does or did runway um, choreography for Pose and worked on that show as a consultant. Um, she was saying to me in the book, like when she was working, when she was in the Kiki Balls and stuff, she would say to people, "One day, you know, I'm I'm going to put ballroom on my resume," and everyone was like, "Girl, no, you aren't. Ballroom isn't. People don't pay you for that, you know." Yeah. And now it literally is that. Yeah. So I, you know, these these ebbs and flows, the, the peaks and dips and stuff, they are going to keep occurring. But I think like, I think like grief, like the stock market, like everything, it's, those are, those are peaks and valleys that are on an exponential slope. Right. And so I think people are, people are finding out. I, I think so. Like calling ballroom underground 
um, these days should be um, passe. You know, it's like you aren't, it, it's not in vogue if, for you to call ballroom underground, you know? Right. You know, I, my, um, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I didn't even know about ball culture existing until I watched Disclosure documentary on Netflix where they show oh. clips of Paris's burning and they talk about Paris's burning and uh, Sam Fader, former oh. guest on the show. Excellent. Great, great documentary friend of mine. Yes. I love Sam. Oh, yeah. So this world just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Sam is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Disclosure mm -hmm. is fantastic. So I saw that and went, what? I don't know what this is. I just remember rewinding the little clips they would show and go, I don't, I don't know what this is. They're talking about it like I should know. And I don't <laughs> know. And I feel, and well. Pose was out, but I hadn't seen Pose. And so I was trying to understand. And so I did some, did, did my homework, did some research. Um, and then was like, okay, documentary Paris is burning. And then through your book, I found about the queen, the queen mm. or queen the, the queen the queen mm. so i've mm. i found that on youtube and added it to my watch later list so i can go back and watch it because because to your point most people just look at the last 10 minutes and it's worth watching the full the the documentary in full so i want to carve yeah. out the hour and 10 minutes to watch it so i say all that and then i watch legendary and when i legendary is fantastic and i am continually blown away by people who have hbo max and have said i've watched i'm using air quotes i've watched everything on hbo max and i'm like have you watched legendary and they've said no i've said all right, right. but what i <laughs> what i love about legendary especially in the second season they did a lot of dis discussions about the community and the issues that are relevant to each of the different um ballroom members um, yeah. of those different particular houses and yes it's still a competition and yes we have one house that wins and yes there's there's some shade there's a lot of discussion but and to that there's a lot of community discussion about what does it mean at this moment in time what has my history like what has this performer's history been like up to this point and then Laomi talks about her experiences as well and and that gave me a lot of under some grounding I would say in this community that I didn't going in to 2020 know anything about. And so um, I think to your point, having things like, like your book and, and the shows and these different educational moments are what is going to educate people into, into this community that they may not have been exposed to. So I say all of that to bring it back around and say, what was it like for you to interview some of these legends for the book who have been doing the damn thing for so long and then now get to share their story with a wider a wider uh, audience? It was it was a mixed bag because well not mixed bag, but it was just very interesting. It wasn't I wasn't like because okay, so to write the book, I wrote the table of contents first because that just seemed like the most fun part. And also that's just the order of operations, right? And I handed it to Michael and Robert, my fathers, and they handed it back to me with a list of names. And I looked at the names and I was like, I know most of these people. Um, and so so that took, drained a little bit of the um, anxiousness about the legends part, you right. know? It's sure. Like some of these people I've sat in rooms with before, have over time become legends or they are old old school legends and now i get to talk to them specifically about ballroom so i then like i'm a real good interviewer like i love to um and that's why all of these are so much fun because it is actually kind of like um it tickles me to be the one on the other end of it sure. you know so, so that's fun but like uh so interviewing is a joy of mine and so i really was just i just was waiting for story time you know and um and also to 
have folks who are definitively ballroom say the things that I want to say on their behalf, but don't have as much credence. Um, And so, um, and they're all activists, most of them. And so, and then some of them aren't too. Some of them are like, I'm a diehard capitalist. I'm going to, um, I'm going to Dubai next week to rent a car and film a music video. And I'm like, all right, girl, do that. You do you, you know, like, so it was, it was nice to see how diverse they were when it came to um, these ventures and entertainment opportunities. Um, but to sit down, to answer your question, sit down with people like Lee Solja. Um, Lee, I had already interviewed before the book was ever even a thing. Lee, I'd interviewed um, because Robert um, Simber had been working with Lee to try to get Lee funding to build a ballroom archive. And folks in ballroom have been trying to do various archives over um, the decades. And Robert in particular, along with Arbert Santana, um, Visu um, had started an oral history project that still is just sitting waiting to be digitized. So had gone around and talked to all these ballroom people and t- been like, tell me your story. So there's hours of hours of that um, record of those recordings that need a home. Oh, they still awesome. don't have a home. So my second chapter is really an appeal for an archive and thinking about the work that my fathers and their their family have done that need a home and you know, trying to make this book an archive at the same time. So, um, so there, that a lot of the, that was going on, but Lee Soldier was trying to build an archive, um, had some Columbia students doing research for him. And I interviewed him trying to gauge how I was going to help him write a grant or ask for a grant from the Mellon Foundation. Sure. Um, so I'd kind of already been like a writer for um, ballroom, like in terms of ballroom activism, at least had been trying to. And then the book became a thing. And then I realized a lot of what Lee had talked to me about was like, you know, I used to work at this store and I used to do ad campaigns for Beyonce and she, you know, like telling me all these wild stories. And so that when we, I interviewed Lee the second time, I was like, tell me about your club kid days, because that's what Lee's known for. Lee Solja is kind of the Black, I don't even like to put it this way, but aesthetically is the Black Lee Bowery who was known for his bizarre sort of costumes and was part of the club kids gotcha. um, with your Michael Alec and Party Monster and all those folks. And so um, and so I wanted to give Lee his flowers because Lee was dancing with Willie Ninja in Japan and, and you know, and like, and, and knowing all these like African Bombada and all these folks. And like, I wanted people to know that story and it, and also use, it allowed, Lee's story allowed me to use the Paradise Garage as um, a foil for Studio 54 and the difference between um, black nightlife in the 60s, 70, or in the 70s and 80s and white nightlife in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of that difference is ballroom, you know, the safe space to be, that church space. Um, so it was um, fascinating. I mean, I had fun asking questions, but what I really, I mean, I wish I could have a whole nother book where it's just their oral histories, you know, um, being told. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's the website to come. I don't know. I've got so many aspirations in so little time. <laughs> like it's, well, I, I wanted... like it. No, I just saw, <clears throat> I just saw a project on, um, and I'm, I, I, oh, I think it's called the Good Project, or maybe I'm misremembering, but it's, um, it's an archive where um, they had set up where two people could come and tell their stories and then they mm-hmm. archived it. And so it's in like the Washington archives or something. And it was, mm-hmm. it was a, I think it was a nonprofit that did it, but, and that's cool. And I really liked it when I heard about, it, but I would much rather have, I guess it doesn't have to be either, or it can be a yes. And I would want to have the ballroom history 
archived in the National Archives because it's part of our national history. It's such a crucial core component of our history that folks don't even realize. And that's the travesty here. Yep. I mean, that's been to your earlier point, you know, like this template for freedom is a template for ballroom is a template for freedom. Yes. And that means for all of our freedom. And it's just like when folks say, you know, um, black history is American history. I mean, that is really just the truth. Yeah. I mean, exactly. if race is a construct, then like everything that's happening to me is happening to you. Exactly. And, um, and if you don't know about it, then that is a huge hole in your, um, experience and, and knowledge so exactly. um so, yeah, yeah it'd be it'd be it'd be horrible for it to be erased yes you know? absolutely um as we're starting to wrap up i want to ask you one last question about the book before we transition to the last segment of the show and that is out of everything we've talked about what is the one takeaway or maybe one or two takeaways that you would want for people when they finish the book um yeah the Okay, so I guess that ballroom isn't all just a dazzling, glittery, um, sequent spectacle. It's um, and it isn't just freedom. It's freedom that comes from a particular struggle, but it also isn't just struggle. Um, that um, you can be anyone that you want to be, and in ballroom spaces, that um, is uh, one of the most apparent um, spaces for me. Um, what else? I don't know. Um, I guess, I, again, that every, all of our history is sort of intertwined. So, you know, if you um, are missing gaps and don't know what ballroom is, I, I would say, check it out. You'll be so happy you did. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, suppose I, I guess that's, I guess that's it. Um, and also just, um, you know, when you are visiting a community, no matter what it is, whether we're talking about visiting a scene, quote unquote, or um, going to a friend's church, or um, dancing in the dance space that you've never danced in before, where everyone isn't exactly like you, just be respectful, but also engage. You know, the difference between um, the difference between a gentrifier and a community member is somebody that engages with the community. So if you're um, living in Brooklyn and you just move there from Oklahoma and you go into the bodega and don't say hi to anybody, you just ask for your coffee and scram and then you go work in the city and just sleep there at night, then then you aren't a part of that community. Right. Um, and the same thing would go for ballroom. Like if you want to, if you're interested in ballroom and maybe you want to become a community member, then put in your time and engage with folks in a, a real um, substantial way and don't just be a voyeur, you know, be real, be, be the real thing. I like it. That's a good apt description for the differences between the two types of people, right? And so we want to engage with the communities in which we're a part of. We want to make sure that <clears throat> we know the people that we're living with, that we're voting in local elections, that we're getting involved in the communities because this is where we live and this is what matters and and change starts with us right here. That's right. And talk to your neighbors, talk to your neighbors. They're there and you when when shit hits the fan, you'll be happy you did. I mean, <laughs> right. when, I mean when COVID happened, it was just like, I knew my neighbors more than I had ever thought I was going to know That's them. And yep. we became tight and it was, it was wonderful and we survived it. So yeah, Perfect. engage with us. Absolutely. Well, 
moving on to the last segment of the show. It is a segment that I like to call Things to Check Out. So it is a segment where I provide something I'm reading, watching, and or listening to, and I invite my guests to share some recommendations as well. So I will go ahead and go first. So um, if you haven't gotten it already, I feel like if you've made it to this part of the podcast and you've not bought and the category is, then you're, uh, I don't know what you're doing with your time. You're already on your phone because you're listening. So just pull up, uh, you know, the web browser and find the book and order it. So beyond getting and the category is, recommendation I do want to give is for uh, Stefan Lee's two books. He's got two books, K-Pop Confidential, K-Pop Revolution. He's going to be on the show here next month. And he's a delight. His books are fantastic. You absolutely need to go get them and support him because he's wonderful. Um, so definitely check those out. Uh, what I'm watching, well, we already mentioned it. I'll just go ahead and put the recommendation out there. For Disclosure, documentary on Netflix, if you've not already watched it, this is a good companion piece. You finish in the category is, let's watch some Disclosure, let's educate ourselves, let's educate our family members, let's educate our neighbors and anyone else who needs uh, to have a good conversation and actually understand some of these important issues. Um, and then the last thing I would say is listening to, so this is a little bit of a shameless plug, but uh, I know I've mentioned this podcast on the show before, but coming out with Lauren and Nicole, it's a podcast where uh, queer people from all walks of life share their coming out stories with the world at large. And I shared my coming out story uh, over this past weekend and it is dropping. So if you're listening to this on the day that this podcast releases on Tuesday, March 8th, uh, my episode is releasing tomorrow, Wednesday, March 9th. Um, so definitely go check it out. Uh, I would appreciate it. It was a very um, uh, exciting but vulnerable moment for me. Um, and I uh, am excited for folks to hear it. So uh, without further ado, Ricky, what is something you're watching, reading, and or listening to? Yeah. So um, by the way, your list is great. I know every single person on that list. Okay, that's perfect. great. That's, that's wonderful. Those are all buds of mine. Okay. So, um, so what am I watching? I'm watching Euphoria, but I hate that I'm saying that because it's so trite because everyone in the world is, but I love that show so much and particularly the one that was the most cringeworthy where Rue is going through rock bottom and running through the streets, just like breaking laws and stuff. It became, it was so hard to watch. It became absurd, absurdly funny. And like, and my, I'm, I have recovering addicts in my family. So at a certain level, that shit just is funny, but um, I would also like to say the worst person in the world. Um, it's a it's a movie. It's a Norwegian movie. It's nominated for best foreign film. It's just a masterpiece. I don't want to ruin anything, but it's just the most beautiful thing I've seen in a very long time. Um, reading. I'm teaching a class on American Gothic. Um, it's called Reading for Writers American Gothic, and it's really a really the it's like a different take. We do read Poe. We do read Flannery O'Connor, but it's really like. Also, Toni Morrison and Percival Everett, we, we question who's allowed to talk about um, America um, in this Gothic subgenre. And so um, Fox 8 by George Saunders is one of the best fables and stories you're ever going to read in your life. So you should read it. I'm rereading it for like the 10th time to teach for my class coming up pretty soon. Um, listening to, um, I'll say, I'll cheat and say two albums. One of them is, um, um, what is it? Is it AJ number number? Oh no, One in a Million by Aaliyah. Because Leah's um, whole catalog has been re-released because her uncle who owned Black Ground Records finally released all of her albums. And I'm telling you the song, if, you, if Your Girl Only Knew, you probably haven't listened to it in a long time because you haven't been able to buy it because her uncle had it. That song is so good. It's a Timbaland joint. It's outstanding. Oh. Um, but then also 
Um, since the pandemic, it got me through a lot. This album called The Slow Rush by, um, by Tame Impala. And they just released the B-sides of that. Um, so the party continues. It's really just um, a beautiful, beautiful album. Perfect. All right. Well, Ricky, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Instagram, I'm pretty um, active with book stuff and events in my own life. So um, I'm at Rictor Scale. So R-I-C-T-O-R-S-C-A-L-E. Um, my website is the writer Ricky Tucker, uh, the writer Ricky Yeah. And then um, I'm not really active on Twitter because it's aesthetically upsetting to me. But um, but but yeah, those two places for sure. Perfect. Well, Ricky, cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. And I hope we will have you back on the show again in the future because this has been a delight. I'd love to come back. Perfect. Well, listeners, you've been detoxing with detox. Now go and make a more inclusive world. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com.